the turn of the 19th century in America. A period of astonishing change. The nation is rapidly expanding its economy. Large corporations, called trusts, dominate in machinery, steel, and oil. Wealthy financiers are building the core American industrial economy. Carnegie, Rockefeller, Vanderbilt. If you want to trace the evolution of private investing in America, you can begin here. A time when private equity is controlled by America's wealthiest individuals and families. Over the next five decades, the economy is driven by two world wars, failed monetary policy, and the beginning of the military-industrial complex. Enter the golden age of capitalism, a time of corporate growth and broad prosperity. Then comes the arrival of a game-changing innovation. The personal computer leads to an overhaul of corporations now able to outsource functions and focus on their core competencies. That drives a new furious era of investing through the 80s and early 90s. Then comes another innovation. The internet leads to a sea change with the first web browser in the mid 90s. That lays the foundation for a new era. An explosion of billion-dollar companies seems to happen overnight. But then, another moment of extraordinary change. It's 2022. It's a period of incredible uncertainty and new opportunities. But not just in venture capital. Investors are seeking targeted exposure to private equity, private debt, real estate, infrastructure, and beyond. To understand today's investment landscape, it's important to understand how we got here. I'm Albert Chen, and this is The Outthinking Investor, a podcast from PGIM that untangles the past, the present-day opportunities, and the future possibilities of the financial tools we take for granted. In this episode, I'll be joined by authors Sebastian Malaby and PGIM's Eric Adler. They'll help us better understand private market investments, including how markets have evolved and where investors might find tomorrow's opportunities. Before we head off on this exploration of private markets, let's bring on our guide to navigate the last few decades of innovation. Sebastian Malaby is a senior fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations and author of the book, The Power Law, Venture Capital and the Making of the New Future. There's been a big shift in the American economy in the last couple of decades. The personal computer was the driving force. It was an opportunity to unbundle big corporations. All of the sort of accounting jobs and mid-level white-collar jobs inside big corporations could be done with fewer people. And so you had a series of leverage buyouts that led to complete re-engineering of big companies. And that drove a lot of investment theses through the 80s and 90s. This was a pivotal moment. What you need to invest in, in this intangible capital is a hands-on investment strategy provided at the early stage by venture capitalists 
who not only provide money, but then go on the board of the startup and know what's going on on inside the startup in a high level of detail. And then in the later stage of company development, you're talking about private equity, which again, buys control of a company, is hands-on about how that company is managed, and can see inside the corporation to understand whether an intangible capital project like a software development scheme is really valuable or actually not valuable at all. So unlike the public markets where investors are at arm's length, private market investors assert their influence. They can demand answers to questions related to valuation. And if they don't like the answers, they can appoint other executives. Or they can sit on the board for even greater influence over the firm's strategic directions. Many venture capitalists did just that. These private investors carried enormous influence at the companies they funded. But very little happens in isolation in the financial markets. So as the dynamics within private market changed, so did the private market investors. Institutional investors witnessed how the endowment model changed portfolio management. David Swenson and Dean Takahashi at Yale University didn't just influence other endowments. They showed that any institutional investors could use the liquidity risk premium across private market investments to add diversification and increase long-term returns. Private markets went from niche to mainstream. But even institutional portfolios have specific characteristics. There is no one-size-fits-all investment model. Duration, cash flow, longevity risk, they all have to be managed. That's where outcome-based investing steps in. The way we've been thinking about private markets has really uh, mirrored the way investors have evolved. That's Eric Adler. He's the CEO of PGM Real Estate and the chairman of PGM Private Equity. I think the best way of thinking about it is in terms of outcome-based investing. And, and that really alludes to what they're looking for as a diversifier in their portfolios versus the traditional private markets. And depending on where in the private investing space you are looking at, some of them can have much more granular income-oriented strategies. Some of these types of strategies lend themselves to a higher leveraged strategy, more use of leverage, obviously creating more volatility, but therefore more outsized potential for returns. And of course, in a time like today, certain real assets and private asset strategies have a, a, an interesting correlation to inflation protection. Some of these types of strategies seem to be well adapted to protecting against uh, the risk of inflation, which hasn't been as much of a topic for a long time, but clearly is the topic du jour. It makes sense that investors would be attracted to different segments of the private markets, depending on their investment goals and their portfolio needs. When does it become less about public or private market segments and more about the portfolio level exposure? They've historically invested across the public and private spheres, and but they were thinking about them in a more siloed fashion. And as they've seen the results of these different types of uh, investment strategies, particularly on the private side, they've been able to link some of them up. For example, uh, an area we've become much more involved in over the last several years is in the private debt space. And uh, if you look at uh, debt strategies, they are much more correlated in terms of their performance across asset classes, even more so than equity. 
So if you're buying an infrastructure equity deal or real estate equity deal, uh, there are some similarities, but there are also differences. On the debt side, it's not as pronounced. So many of our investors are starting to look at us and say, we want to do private debt. And we are more indifferent than we used to be on whether some of that could be in mortgages, some of that could be in infrastructure debt, some of that could be in uh, financing of private equity deals. So it seems the evolution of private market investors or their investment goals has fed into the evolution of private market strategies. Can a less siloed approach give fund managers more range in the types of deals they consider? It can. And so the advantage of this approach some investors are are giving to us is it does allow for a much wider spectrum of deal selection, which is particularly important in markets that are competitive. If you're only able to do a certain strategy regionally or only a certain type of asset class, that's going to limit the potential to find deals that have more attractive competitive features. You're probably more likely to have to chase certain kind of deals in auctions. But if you can invest across a private equity and a private investment spectrum, you can pick and choose a little more easily. That kind of flexibility sounds like more than something that's just nice to have for any strategy. With all the challenges of investing in private markets, it could become a major competitive advantage. And the number one challenge across the private markets? Liquidity, or more to the point, illiquidity. You really have to spend a lot of time understanding what some of the ongoing challenges with these assets are going to be. So that by nature creates a lot of illiquidity. It's just not easy to trade these under the best of circumstances, whether it's a debt or an equity deal. The timeline between starting a process and closing a deal is weeks at best and often months. So that by nature limits the amount of trades. The second is, although maybe technology will make some strides in the coming years on being able to unitize single investments, and that could be a piece of infrastructure, it can be a building, it could be a farm. You can't really break these up into small pieces. Today, you buy the whole thing. And so it's very lumpy. It's very hard to compare these different assets to each other. So that gets really into the question of valuation. There's not an obvious value that's being determined on a recurring basis for most of these assets. So you have to refer to external experts in some areas and in other areas that are not as deep in terms of the the history and the, the volume of transactions over the years. You don't have those experts, so you have to rely on your own skills. And so that's a real challenge, but at the same time, it's what creates the advantage, that illiquidity, that difficulty of comparing one deal to another exactly, the latency effect between identifying an asset that you're interested in and even being sure you can access it at all because someone else could beat you to it. Or even if you do win, the, the time it takes to get there and the things you discover along the way that you have to decide how you in, integrate or not into the price or the mechanism through which the transaction is going to take place. Private market investments are just different beasts when it comes to execution. Liquidity and valuation will always be a challenge. Another hurdle for these firms is governance. Sebastian has a recent example of how governance can go awry. Uber is a great illustration of the way that venture capitalists can do a brilliant job and then sometimes achieve an only kind of medium brilliant uh, outcome. 
The Series A backer of Uber was Bill Gurley. It almost reads like a Shakespearean tragedy. Bill Gurley seemed to have the right instincts. He backed the perfect founder, who was the perfect person for the early stage. That person? Travis Kalanick. But when Uber grew to the point where it was a big company and therefore had big social responsibilities, and it was completely failing to make good on those responsibilities, Gurley was sitting there on the board saying, look, you can innovate by having a great product, but you're not going to innovate by having a wacky kind of accounting function or by ignoring your legal obligations or by tolerating a toxic culture inside your company. Those are not good innovations. Kalanick just ignored him because he could. When they tried to regulate his service, he was failing to clamp down on a toxic culture that tolerated sexual harassment inside the company. All of these things, Bill Gurley, the early investor, was telling him to fix, and he refused to fix them, and he refused with impunity because Gurley's governance power over Uber had been diluted to the point of insignificance. Uber illustrates the importance of good governance and how governance can represent a real risk to investment. There is no check and no balance. And no matter how good you are as an entrepreneur, that is not a healthy situation. Gurley had to wait until Kalanick went so far off the rails that he could create a coalition of early investors that was big enough uh, to fire Kalanick. But it would have been a lot better for investors and a lot better for society if Curley had been able to do that earlier because the governance rights had not been so diluted. Uber is an example of how a lot of things have to go right for a private market investment to succeed. Maybe it's why we call them unicorns. That's the idiosyncratic risk at the company level. But there's also the cyclical risk facing private markets as the era of cheap money comes to an end. If the bull market was fueled to a large extent by the long period of low interest rates, where are we headed now? I think we're right now at a bit of an inflection point in the private investing world as rates start to go up. Uh, if you think about a lot of private investments, they're cash flow driven. And so how do you value those investments? You use a discount rate like you do for growth companies on the future expected cash flow you're going to get. And at the end of it, you have a residual value. And as the rates, interest rates go up, discount rates go up. So the negative of that for cash flow driven investments is that the same cash flows you expected in year five are worth less today. Now that's fine if you can price that in. But when I talk about inflection points, one thing that is very important to keep in mind on private markets is the lag effect of valuations in private markets. In the stock market, the bond market, you're seeing prices adjust on a daily basis to what the world is anticipating future value is worth. In private markets, there's a lag effect. Because valuations can happen on a daily basis and assets aren't comparable to each other, valuations will, will lag. The change in valuation will lag what it will in the, in the public markets. And unless there's distress in the system, uh, in other words, unless you have forced sellers, and right now, bank balance sheets are healthy, and so therefore, banks are putting no pressure on owners of private assets to liquidate them prematurely or at what we call fire sale prices, the sellers will hold out. They'll wait. They're still holding on to 
older valuations. So the real edge today is in having the discipline to strike the right balance between getting a deal done and making sure you're paying the right valuation, which could end up being much lower just three or four months from now. And that's really the moment we're in. And so as rates go up, the first step we're seeing is, and I'm, I'm anticipating this because we're right at that point now, you'll get a lowering of volume. You'll have less deals happen because sellers are holding out for prices they could have gotten last year and buyers aren't sure they want to pay that. And some deals are happening with a bit of a discount, three, 5%, still reasonable, but some sellers feel strong. They don't want to sell for that discount. And so over time, what that should lead to is a readjustment of pricing so that the markets can take off on a readjusted basis on what future cash flows are and, and what the right discount rate is to net present value them to today's value. Now that's the challenge of private investments. Rising rates may be a hurdle, but it's not the only one. Another cyclical challenge? Crowding. It may be a growing concern for investors, but crowding is nothing new for the private markets. Take Facebook, for instance, and how one early investor drove crowding in the private markets. In 2009, Facebook was looking to raise another round of capital and because of the 08 crisis, it couldn't get anybody to write a check. And into this vacuum, there stepped an unlikely Russian investor, Yuri Milner, who phoned from Moscow to speak to the chief financial officer at Facebook and offered to write the check that all the usual suspects were refusing to do. And the chief financial officer, sitting in his office in Silicon Valley, said, Who are you? Where are you calling from? And why should I take you seriously? And Yuri Milner said, I'm Yuri Milner. I'm in Moscow. I've never been to Silicon Valley in my life, but you should take me seriously. And the Facebook guy, not surprisingly, says, stop wasting my time, and he hung up. Yuri Milner put down the phone, got the next flight to Silicon Valley, and called from San Francisco airport, and said to the guy, now will you take me seriously? I'm calling from SFO. So out of some combination of shock and sympathy, the Facebook chief financial officer agreed to the meeting and Yuri Milner went down to see him and persuaded him that he should be taken seriously because Milner was himself the founder of the Facebook clone in Russia and knew an awful lot about how social media companies were scaling outside the United States. He talked his way into Mark Zuckerberg's office and he persuaded Zuckerberg to accept a large amount of uh, investment from Milner's investment vehicle, DST. This growth investment was so profitable so quickly that it spawned an absolute avalanche of imitation from all of the U.S. venture investors. Andreessen Horowitz went into the same mode of investing big time. Tiger Global, based in New York, which had been doing this kind of deal already outside the U.S., started following Milner in doing enormous amounts of growth stage bets inside the US. And this gave rise to an absolute explosion in these late stage venture checks, which in turn allowed companies to defer the moment when they went public. And so unicorns started popping up all over the ecosystem before they would have gone public when they got to a valuation of a billion. Now they didn't need to because they could raise capital privately 
from growth investors. And since 2009, the global financial crisis was a small setback for VC and private equity investments. In the US alone, private markets have grown by the trillions of dollars. Could some of today's funds become victims of their own success? Yeah, this is always a challenge in a lot of these private markets. They tend to be cyclical. And in the early phases of the cycle, they tend to outperform the public markets in many ways. And they are decorrelated from some of the volatility you see in public markets. And as the cycle wears on, you have more and more players wanting access to these assets. And when I say players, it could be institutions, it can be hedge funds, it can be all kinds of different investors who suddenly see private investing as a way to outperform or create a nice diversifier to the public markets. And they start diversifying into these other areas of private investing because of these similar characteristics that their investor base is looking for. Values are going up. So everybody feels like they can grow. They can grow into these new areas of expertise. They'll hire expertise. And so what that leads to by the end of a market is a crowded market. It's across the board. This happens time and time again, and it's it's happened now. I give a few examples. Even just a few years ago, something like digital infrastructure, and that's things like data centers, fiber optics networks, cell towers, even satellites. That was a specific strategy that very few players were specialized in. The data centers sat in the real estate space, but the other areas, there were very few players that were really specialized in that space. Today, every infrastructure fund and a lot of real estate players are trying to get into some or all of that space. Same thing for renewable infrastructure. Same thing for in real estate, what we called alternative asset classes, senior housing, self-storage. These were niche-type investment strategies that are now mainstream. So where does that leave today's private market investors who are looking for opportunities that haven't been fully tapped? Well, that seems to be the $64,000 question. Or in this case, the $6.4 trillion question. Not surprisingly, Eric still sees opportunity. Things like more and more use for the cloud, meaning you need more hyperscale data centers than we have. You need a multiple of what exists um, today. Renewable energy, whatever you believe, there clearly is a transition that's going to happen over time, and we don't have nearly enough renewable infrastructure to handle it. Last mile logistics. Obviously, we saw a big acceleration in online shopping during the pandemic. Some of that's going to calm down a bit, but the general trend is going to remain upward. So if you have a long-term horizon, everything linked to technology and its impact on society, there is a real asset strategy that you can execute to take advantage of that. Another trend that Eric says to pay close attention to? Carbon reduction. The idea of uh, reducing carbon, of trying to mitigate the effects of climate change, and frankly, increasingly with what we're seeing geopolitically today, finding ways to be more self-sufficient in terms of energy. And for countries that don't have the advantage of having oil or fossil fuels, that by nature goes into some sort of a renewable strategy because most people have some level of sunlight or some level of wind or hydro. The final key trend? demographics. We have aging population and notwithstanding what happened during the pandemic, we believe firmly that for all kinds of reasons, 
there's going to be a continued urbanization of societies, even if there was a bit of a hiccup with COVID and in, particularly in some of the more developed markets, people shying away from verticality in where they live and cities, we believe in the long term, there's no alternative but continued urbanization. I think continuing to look to markets like Asia, many of the Asian markets just have a very strong long-term growth perspective. We, we think that that's a continuing opportunity for those that have a long-term horizon and have the stomach to invest now and, and be patient and ride through whatever volatility you might see as we see more quantitative tightening, increase of interest rates, and everything else we're going to have to do to, to try to tackle this, this global challenge of inflation that we have. So that's for the long term. For the short term, oftentimes the place you want to look at are the places that look the least attractive now. To illustrate how opportunities might lie in unexpected places, Eric turns to an area hit especially hard by the pandemic. A lot of challenges around offices today. What's the future of work? Hybrid work, we're in the thick of that today. All signs point to the office being less needed on a people per square foot basis than they were in the past. That's going to come out in the price. I think values can get low enough that in the near term, there'll be an overcorrection. There are often overcorrections in the, in the private market. Overcorrections occur as a result of the pandemic and geopolitical events, too, which could open up some interesting opportunities in certain markets around the world. We noticed, for example, that in the real estate markets in Germany, because of the dynamic of importing a vast amount of natural gas from Russia, that's really turned the spigot off, so to speak, in the real estate markets in Germany. We think that's overblown. So we think there'll be opportunities to maybe um, buy into an overcorrection in terms of pessimism on the German real estate markets. I think the advantage of having geographic breadth and depth and depth of expertise across these different asset classes means you can be pickier and still find deals to do. I think it's more challenging at the top of the market for specialists because they only know how to do one thing. And if their space is crowded, they either have the discipline to shut themselves down temporarily or they keep buying as prices keep getting away from them. More challenging days may lie ahead. Valuations could be more closely scrutinized in both the private and public markets. And that could mean more emphasis on fundamentals. Exits could get tricky, but long-term investors know to expect some turbulence at this stage of the market cycle, and successful managers will know how to adapt. Thanks to PGIM's Eric Adler and author Sebastian Malaby for their insights into private markets. Join me, Albert Chen, for the next episode of The Outthinking Investor, where we consider potential effects of stagnation and stagflation on the U.S. economy. The Outthinking Investor is a podcast from PGIM. Follow, subscribe, and if you like what you hear, go ahead and give us a review.
This podcast is intended solely for professional investor use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments involve risk, including the loss of capital. PGM is not acting as your fiduciary. The contents are for informational purposes only, are based on information available when created, and are subject to change. It is not intended as investment, legal, or tax advice, and does not consider a recipient's financial objectives. This podcast includes the views and opinions of the authors and may not reflect PGM's views. PGM and its related entities may make investment decisions that are inconsistent with the views expressed herein. This podcast should not be reproduced without PGM's prior written consent. No liability is accepted for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss that may arise from any use of the information contained in or derived from this podcast. This material is not for distribution to any recipient located in any jurisdiction where such distribution is unlawful. PGM is the global asset management business of Prudential Financial Inc., which is not affiliated in any manner with Prudential PLC, incorporated in the United Kingdom, or with Prudential Assurance Company, a subsidiary of M&G PLC, incorporated in the United Kingdom. Copyright 2022. The PGM logo and the rock symbols are service marks of PGM's parent and its related entities registered in many jurisdictions worldwide.